brand new episode of Into the Looking Glass Starkly with your host, Dave Esquiro. My guest today is the singer, front person, lyricist, and creative directive of the band Evil Walk. Leah Martin-Brown is joining us. She's one of my closest friends. She is actually the reason my wife and I were introduced with one another. And I love having her on the show because she gives real insight on the process that a musical artist must undertake. We talked a lot on this podcast uh, a bit more about the business of being a musician of of the studios and what they look for in music studios and the role that social media plays in the artist's uh, creative uh, process as well as sort of the changing landscapes and how it's affected uh, the music industry in the same way that it's affected the movie industry. It's so interesting to hear uh, an artist who works in the field giving an opinion as to the going-ons of said field. I think sometimes with movies and music, we have, because we, we as as you know, fans of the genres, we love it so much, and we feel this is an intimate knowledge on how it works, but when you actually talk to people inside the industry, filmmakers, musicians, artists, people who make a living doing this, people who have put years to learning a craft or an artisanship. These people bring such important clarity to issues that most of us and most of the journalistic media out there isn't really talking about because it's not self-serving. And if you look at a lot of the things that are written about these genres from journalists and bloggers and things of that nature, there does seem to be this sort of illusion of having the real insights of what it feels like to be an artist in these industries that have that are rapidly changing and yet when you hear someone who actually works in the field speak about it how it affects them directly how it affects uh, their process the, the outlook and and how it makes someone who's put years to developing a craft or artisanship feel when your art gets boiled down to numbers and figures and analytics. I think that that is true clarity and what we need more of. I think we need less people sitting on the sidelines talking about what they view from far away and more people from the inside actually speaking about their experiences. If you're a fan of music or movies or any kind of entertainment and you are noticing a decline in quality, a decline in appreciation, a decline in the things that made you fall in love with these genres in the first place, then I implore you to take the time to listen to artists like Leah speak about their personal experiences so that the bullshit that comes from the media can be wiped away and you can get some real insight knowledge on what exactly is happening and perhaps find a way to involve yourself so that these things that we love don't go the way of the dodo. Leah is always very honest, upfront, and I love her perspective, and I so appreciate her coming on. So, without further ado, lead singer from the band Evil Walks, Leah Martin-Brown. Well, firstly, welcome back. It's been a little while since we've chatted on, at least on the podcast, we talk all the time, but... Yeah, it's been over a year, I think. I think this, almost this time last year, back in my uh, Hollywood apartment was the last time. Yeah, I think so, and since that time... You have been on, um, to say a jet-setting journey, what what I think would be an understatement. You've been all all over the world in that time since we last chatted. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely have been. <laughs> like, I, I had I 
had I gone to Costa Rica yet as well? Because I'm trying to think how many different areas of the world I've hit since I spoke to you last. Had I just come back from Costa Rica last time? Was I about to go? Because that I would include might- something else. Yeah, I think you might have you might have uh, about to go. Yeah, had you been had you been to Sweden yet at that point? I guess you might have. I'd been to. I'd just gotten back from Sweden in the July, gotcha. the first Sweden trip. So you had a new uh, single just drop. Um, when this comes out on Monday, it would have dropped, I believe, on Thursday of 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 this past week. Friday, it dropped on Friday U.S. time. Oh yes. Okay. So now was that something like for a song like that, um, was that something that you were able to record, um, in, in one of your overseas journeys? Was that something that you'd had in your pocket for a while? Like what was sort of the, the sort of experience of, of prepping, writing, producing, and having that one geared to be like the next single for Evil Walks? So that song is one that I have been sitting on since or oh, September or October, 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote that as a pair with um, the another single that we recently released, Back Where You Belong. They were both re- uh, co-written with a Canadian producer, Brian Howes, in the studio that he had uh, just here at, well, in North Hollywood-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, it was in my first 90 days of sobriety as well, so I was kind of angry. Um, <laughs> so right. that was fun. That was fun. We did that and... Um, yeah, I've just been sitting on it, like waiting for the right time. And I guess now we decided was the right time. So what goes into that? Because I, it's, I was just having this conversation with Jess, as you well know, because you introduced us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we're talking a bit about, we we're talking about AFI specifically and how uh, the band AFI is doing a uh, something that they swore they would never do, which is a um, full concert of Sing the Sorrow, the sort yeah. of seminal release on their first release on a major uh, label that is 20 uh, almost 20 years old now or maybe it will be 20 years when um the concert comes around and it's something that they had openly talked about never doing and i i had speculated that perhaps one of the reasons that they were doing this was that be- that you know in modern time uh record releases and the money that you make from record releases is just it's just not sustainable in the same ways that it would have been 20 years prior and so doing more events like you know playing a, a, a seminal record you know beginning to end is kind of becoming more the norm because you have to overcome that lack of album sales uh so i guess to me it just leads me back to the question of sort of what goes be into the the strategy of this of of sort of releasing singles how they're selected like um you, is it more beneficial to do it that way than than the old school way of releasing a whole album and sort of waiting for it to catch fire or get radio play yeah the, it's really sad these days um and I mean, this is just the advice I've received as well. So obviously I'm not signed to a major label. So maybe it's different if you're with a label. I'm not signed to a label. So maybe if I was, that would be different. But uh, because of the way social media has trained people's brains, essentially, uh, it's like content, content, content. Like if you mm-hmm. as a musician haven't posted something in a week, oh my God, they're not active. Whereas, you know, back in the 90s, the 2000s, whatever, 
you know, you released an album lucky if you're lucky once a year and then you push the singles. You'd be like anywhere but like four to five singles. You'd do videos with them. You'd go on tour, et cetera, et cetera. Now it is very much a singles market. Like obviously I'd love to say that, yeah, it's about albums. We want to do this because you always want to create the album and obviously people still release albums, but it is more single focused because that's people's attention spans of that. If you release a whole album, just drop it. You do like, here's the single, the album's out next week. Unless you have like this whole huge, um, like horde of diehard fans, there's going to be songs on that album that like people may not even listen to. You know, you've put all this time, money, effort into this thing because people are now so trained to be like, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? You want to drag out those singles or that album for as long as you can. So it's like single, 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 you'll see artists release like seven or eight singles. It's like, here's the album and it's got one extra song on it, you know? And yeah. that's that may not be the case for everyone. Again, I'm just speaking from my own personal experience. So just putting that out there. <laughs> well, it's it's strange. I, I, I think you're on to something because it is in some ways like that in the movie industry as well um, with streaming services. Wherein, you know, in, in the olden days, you would have released, um, you know, several smaller films and they'd sit in the box office for, for, you know, in theaters for quite a long time. And you wouldn't and you wouldn't expect them to hit the secondary market of uh, DVD or Blu-ray sales and and much less show up on like premium cable channels like an HBO, Showtime, etc. First up sometimes between, you know, three to six months or, or longer. And so. Um, with the move away from that into streaming, uh, the streaming services are kind of faced in, in a very similar way to what artists are now uh, in that they have to put out constantly new shows. Like the moment Sandman ends, you got to have that next show ready to go. The moment uh, Stranger Things ends, you have to have that next movie, Mandalorian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's never a break anymore. And in fact, even for the longest time, you know, Netflix was just dumping uh, and maybe they still do it this way, but they were just dumping all every episode to a series and so that people could binge it in a weekend or a week max. And then they had to have the next thing ready. And uh, there never seemed to be time to let one product or one piece of art sort of just exist for a while, find its home, find its audience. You know, you always hear about classic movies or albums for that matter that upon release – weren't a fan, you know, weren't a hit with the critics or weren't a hit in the box office. But over time, they kind of found that audience. Now it feels like because there's this need to just constantly put out a new thing on a regular basis or people kind of forget about you. It doesn't seem like it allows you much time for people to just kind of discover whether or not you're the, you're putting out the kind of art that they like. No, it it's really... It is really difficult as an artist. I know that you will, um, Dave, I know that you will uh, identify with this being in film as well, but it's not like art isn't something that can really be rushed. Mm -hmm. Like it's something that needs time and effort. Like there is a difference at the moment, artists, musicians, um, producers, et cetera, get lumped in with content creators. And mm -hmm. like whilst we do create content, it's not the same as an influencer who creates content. It's mm -hmm. a very different thing. And I think it does it a disservice because 
everyone's so focused on analytics, like what are your numbers? How many people are you engaging? What are your monthly listeners? How many hits did you get in the first 24 hours? Oh, you didn't get uh, a thousand in the first 24 hours. Oh, it must be a shit song then. And it's just, it's really wearing because unless you already have this insane fan base or you have a label behind you or you've had some kind of viral marketing that you've either you know, you're a genius and you've worked out and well done to those people. I hats off to you. I'm not a marketing genius. Um, or you've got a lot of friggin' money behind it. It's really difficult because there's more people, people more than ever now have access to your art and also people can create more art. It's, um, it's no longer, Oh, you have to have 20 grand to record this. Like people can record amazing sounding things in their home studios but it's just it just gets with that there's it just gets lost and i think um it just becomes really demoralizing to you know need that creative break and then be told like oh well you're not relevant because you haven't posted for 3 days and you're like what that's not how this works like how no. long did it take for tool to release their last album sit the fuck down right well it, and because to your point right you you can't what a vlogger does uh, and I used to work with vloggers at my old job, right? I worked for YouTube stars and, you know, not to take away anything that they do because they do put a lot of work into it. But a lot of what they do is just sort of stream of conscious. It's vlogging. Um, you know, there's obviously there's work behind it, but they could pick a topic every day to talk about, you know, if I wanted to turn this podcast into a daily rant of shit that irritates me, I could do that. I could easily every day pick a, sop, a topic and just talk about what I don't like about it every single day. Um, I, I'm I'm sure anyone can go on their Instagram. Now, now, you may not become viral. You may not blow up. But people can churn out content relatively quickly if that's what their desire is to do, if that's their business. With art, though – um, it's, it, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but it, it does require a certain level of thoughtfulness behind it. Um, if you want to have quality and it feels like for some reason in recent times, and I really, I would even say like the last 10 years, but maybe it's been a slow decline. It seems like people are, are not only okay with bad content or, or shallow content, um, be it music or movies or whatever, but they champion it. And you see that a lot in movies like with Marvel films, like Marvel fans are so precious about such mediocrity that it, it, it's frustrating because even if you were allowed, even if you had the resources and if you were allowed to, you know, do what the stones did and like rent a, a chateau in France and sit there for eight months and write music and, and find that perfect sound that, that to create like a, a classic album. It feels like people are perfectly content to just listen to whatever schlock is on the radio or watch whatever schlock is on streaming services. And I don't know. I mean, I, I would like to believe that all things are cyclical, um, I just don't know at what point we're going to rotate back where there is a, a – when that bubble bursts, when you just simply can't churn out content at the speed that it's demanded and retain any kind of credibility. At what point people say, okay, enough of fast food. We're, we're ready for real a real meal now. 
It's so difficult. I think uh, having having the pandemic as well, um, you know, everyone, not everyone, because obviously there was Sweden and a few other countries, but there are, you know, a lot, for a majority of time, there were a lot of places in the world that were restricted to being in their homes and not allowed to leave unless we were grocery shopping or doing whatever, which means a lot of content was streamed in a very, very quick amount of time. Mm. Um, speaking about Marvel, I had never seen most of them and I decided to watch all of the films in like the order that they're supposed to be watched, not the actual order they were oh. released. It mm. took me less than a week. Like that—that's an undertaking in itself. What is there? Like eleven friggin' films. So uh, there might be more now. Yeah, there might be more now. But you know, I'd watched everything on Netflix that was worth watching, and had like gone through to renting films on Amazon, like Zombie Nazi Sharks and weird shit like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I feel yeah. like that really did. Um, you know, that's where TikTok obviously started to really take off. I'm sure it would have taken off anyway because that app is like crack. But um, you know, it's. It's really interesting. I think people are still locked in that mindset of that because they haven't quite realized like, hey, we're back, we're here. Um, it's not that instant gratification. People don't like waiting for things anymore. So that content dumping, I think it has something to do with that. But again, I'm not sure if I've had enough coffees to have the, you know, make the philosophical connection that I'm trying to right now. <laughs> no, I, I, mean, I think you're right. We, we've moved, I mean, the, the market, and and society has moved us towards this this entitledness for more and now and um you know with we, you know to, from, with like with Spotify for example it's it's probably pretty rare that people listen to albums front to back any longer you know they've probably and I I'm I'm just as guilty of it they've curated a, a million playlist of all their favorite songs and or you know maybe they maybe they check out the most you know viewed song, um, but I, I just wonder like at certain point like for the industry as a whole, I, I just don't think that this this rapid pace like factory uh, pop art is sustainable. Um, no. Not just for the artists. I mean, obviously, it's not sustainable for the artists. A lot of artists are are struggling and they're having to do things beyond just you know making music, uh, which is what they're meant to be doing, but. Uh, for the companies as well, for the studios as well, like at a certain point, like how how can you keep churning this stuff out and not have people just get over it? Like I find myself more and more when I come across things that I can tell were kind of rushed through or or are just being done, you know, with limited resources because they got to churn something out. I find my eyes glazing over or my ears glazing over if it's music, if it doesn't feel like there was some thoughtfulness put behind it. Uh, I I really hope that we can move past it. Um, in the at least in the music world, even the way that they develop artists has really changed. You know, you mm. have to back in the eighties, nineties. You know, A and R people would go out to shows. They'd be like, "Wow, this band is great!" Like it could be a very raw band. They'd be like, "Nah, they've got it. They've got a few things." They would put the money into developing them, helping them, getting their you know, getting them to where they needed to be, and then helping them release. Now it's like. They just check out what your stats are. They see on Spotify. If you go viral on TikTok, it's like, oh, look, they've already got the audience. Let's sign them. Um, right. And, like, trying to get signed is so difficult. Like, of course, it's always difficult. I'm not saying that it wasn't back then. I'm sh- it's probably harder because you don't have the access now. But unless you have a full package ready to go, marketing plan, you've put in all this money yourself, um, 
you've got songs that are like, oh, they're perfect. We don't have to do anything to them. Like you've literally done all the A&Ring for them. And then you might be lucky and they'll be like, cool, we'll give you 20 grand. You're like, okay, this, uh, that's great. I've probably put more into this than that. That's fine. It's, it's interesting. And I'm sure not all labels are like that. I'm sure there's, you know, different things, again, just speaking from experience and also, you know, what I've heard from other people. Um, I, I just think that I would hope that society changes, but I mean, even during, and I go back to the pandemic again, cause I'm just thinking about it now. Um, I love to read, right? I'm, mm. I'm an avid reader. It's something I love to do. And at one point during the pandemic, I realized I'd, I think it was the first month of lockdown. I was like, I haven't read in a while. I need to read. I started trying to read a book. I would get through one page and then I'd be back on my phone. I'm like, what am I doing? And I had to really retrain myself because I'd been accessing content so quickly and just scrolling through and doing all of that. It was like 30 second bursts that my brain was having trouble concentrating. So I really had to put effort back in for like at least 30 days to retrain my brain to hold that concentration. And even now, like I, I'm really trying to not use it as much, but I, I think, I think that's not a, I think it's a kind of a common thing now. People were so used to doing all this short bites thing that it's, you know, lowered their concentration even further. So maybe the fact the content is not some of them, I mean, there are creators out there doing amazing things, not taking away from them. No one get offended, please. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, it's, you know, people are so used to it being in small doses. I'm not sure unless they make a conscious effort that they'll be like, oh, okay, scroll next, you know, like I, I'm not sure. It's a bit scary. Well, I I don't know if this was uh, validated, but I I do remember a few years back, several years back, in fact, that there was um, some talk of the connection between increased television watching um, at an early age, in particular at a very developmental age, uh, and um, ADD and ADHD. And the theory supposed that because – when your brain is first formulating, you're watching 24 frames, or in the case of television, it's 30 frames per second of a still image flashed in front of your eye at such a rapid pace that you 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 give the illusion of movement, right? Mm-hmm. And then at that age that you're able to – that your brain, even on a subconscious level, is able to pick up that it's getting these, these sort of – the sort of strobe effect, you know? And that it starts to learn in those kind of rapid successions. And I think that it's very possible that, that at least there's some truth to that. And that there's also a connection between that and social media. Yeah. In that we – everything I mean, from Twitter to Instagram and, and TikTok, everything is, is sort of compressed. You know, whether it's uh, something you're, re- you're reading or an image or short video, everything can be sort of absorbed within a second, like at the speed of, of recognition. And there, um, it's very, it's very easy to get drawn into the habit of, you know, what we call doom scrolling. And I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. And like you, I'm also trying to divorce myself from social media, particularly, and, and being on my phone as often. And because you can, I've caught myself just staring at this like quick passing blur as I scroll through Twitter or Instagram or something, not really absorbing anything that I'm seeing. And one of the things that has helped me start to separate myself from it is 
the acknowledgement that nothing that I'm looking at is is uh, substantial or interesting. Like that there's that I'm looking for something on my phone that I'm not going to find, which is something that intrigues me, something that captivates my attention, something that engages me. And more often than not, that's not going to be found um, on your phone. It's not going to be found on your social media apps because it, there's, just, there's just not enough depth to any of it. And so I hope that that be, kind of becomes um, a, a, a feeling that more, more and more people start to come to realize that, of course, there is great stuff on, online, but a lot of it's not that great. And, and perhaps uh, rather than scrolling for five hours a day, through these social media apps, hoping for a glimpse of something that will intrigue you. Maybe that, that five hours would be spent better watching uh, uh, or reading or listening to something of quality. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, uh, my, my partner is a software engineer and he absolutely hates social media with a fiery passion. Uh, and since being with him, it's really kind of opened my eyes and we watched a really cool documentary on Netflix about it. Um, you know, social media isn't really designed to connect us with other people. Social media is designed to sell us things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we perpetuate that by engaging in these viral trends. We, by buying things from brands that we like and tagging them and being like, oh my God, cute sweater I got from so-and-so. Even if we paid for it, that company's getting free marketing. And mm-hmm. while it is great, um, you know, as like I do travel a lot, I'm not often in the same country as the people I love. So in that respect, I do love social media because mm-hmm. it allows me for free, um, in a way that I didn't have in 2014, 2015, you know, I had to use Messenger and Viber to call my friends. Now I can just post an update or message them that way. But aside from that, it's like, you know, we're just becoming little free advertisers for all these multinational billionaire corporations, Shakespeare's. Well, and and that's that's one of the interesting things that I've found. Uh, I, I I know you don't spend much time on Twitter. Good on you. But, I hate um, Twitter. I can't. I just won't. But you're aware of like uh, like the yes. frenzy that's happening right now. Oh yes, Musk, I am. <laughs> you know, and all that jazz. And uh, it's kind of settling down now. But for a couple of days, there everyone was like, "It's going to shut down. It's the end of the world." You know. And um, I I I find myself watching people just be so overly dramatic about this because i've i've been critical of musk for for years and years and years like back back if you listen to one of my my first podcasts uh tired of winning we had a whole episode where we basically called people like musk uh lex luther but this is back when everyone everyone was convinced that he was tony stark like there was a whole period of time there. A lot of these same people who are criticizing him now, there's a whole period of time yeah. there where these people thought that like tech giants and, and tech moguls were going to be like the salvation for all of our ills. And I think that finally people are waking up to the fact that these people are ghoulish and that um, rather than solve problems, they're more inclined to perpetuate existing problems and make things worse. And where this ties back to music um, I would assume, because this is the way it is in, in movies, one of the issues with the way the industries are, are operating is because they're being run by tech people. Yeah. You know, AT&T bought Warner Brothers. Um, 
uh, Verizon owned, I forget what, what network they own. Like a, a lot of these online uh, streaming services and even studios, uh, and when I presume to some degree record labels, they're being run by people who built their name in tech, in software, rather than in um, you know producing either uh, you know records or movies, or even being an A and R person who's like like you were saying earlier was was sort of trained to be able to spot that that un like unintangible it factor. Those people and those peoples who who brought that kind of skill to the job have been, in, at least in my experience, replaced by people who kind of spend all their days looking at uh, you know, Excel spreadsheets and bell charts and statistics, and they're trying to moneyball their way to success uh, through analytics rather than, you know, having a, a true sense for what will engage the audience and won't won't. Yeah, I I mean the guy who opened Spotify is, is who runs Spotify is the probably a good example of that one. Right. Yeah, what yeah. what does he know about like you know like they build these algorithms and you know sometimes the algorithms will pick stuff that you like based on you know it tracks your sensibilities but it doesn't have it really doesn't have that sort of tastemaker um edge that that a, a, a radio DJ would have had or uh, the guy that works at your local um, movie rental place might have like someone who can like get to know you as a person um, or, or can find this underground thing and kind of amplify it. When you're, when you're, when you're basing everything off of analytics, you're, you're being reactionary. You're looking at data and you're being reactionary to that. And you're hoping in that reaction, you'll find that next thing that keeps people hooked rather than really understanding what you're representing art wise and knowing whether or not it has legs based on its own merit, not just a series of like of, uh, of uh, happenstances and, and sort of patterns that you're examining. Yeah. It's, it's it's sad because the the next generation it's so easy to get discouraged i think mm -hmm. as a as an artist because if you're you're constantly comparing yourself right so if you release this thing that you're so proud of and you've put so much work into and you've you know spent money on and time and effort and it all comes down to what it does in the first 24 hours that this algorithm tells you you know really logically that doesn't speak for what kind of art it is it doesn't right. tell you like that's a good song or that's a bad song. It just tells you that, okay, maybe this just didn't hit the right people at the right time because of, you know, marketing, algorithm, whatever. But you don't take it that way. You take it quite personally. So it is hard for the next generation of musicians because obvious and artists and movie producers and everything because you, they might be creating incredible art but that may not be reflected and, it you know, it is very demoralising it is kind of soul crushing and it does get, you know, tempting to be like, well, maybe if I go wear strange clothing and do a dance on TikTok, I'll have more, um, I'll have more success next time. That's, uh, and that's the saddest part. I think the saddest part is that you, there's this famous Mitch Hedberg joke where he talks about being a comedian and he talks about when you're, when you become a good comedian, that people will want you to do things that are related, that are kind of vaguely related to comedy, but aren't comedy. Right. Like being in a sitcom, there was that whole period of time there where all these stand up comedians were being given like these like family sitcom type shows. And 
he equated it to like the joke goes like it's like asking a farmer or, or, or asking a cook rather, right? Asking a chef if they know how to farm, like vaguely, vaguely connected, mm-hmm. but not. And I, and I would presume that it's, it's very similar for you as a front person. Your job is to engage your audience, right? I, I love the line from Almost Famous where Jason Lee's character says his job is to find that person who's not getting off and getting them off, right? But now it's like you're asked to do that digitally. Like you're asked to sort of engage people, not in your audience who are there to listen to your music, but like through your Instagram posts and tweet posts and TikToks and and all those other things that are sort of like adjacent, like they're adjacent marketing, but they're not what you're what you've spent years developing a skill in. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating because it for me at least I I enjoy you know posting and everything, but my thing is I love to perform, I love to create, I love to write music. And it just gets a bit too much when it's like, oh, well, you know, you really need to get into this TikTok thing and maybe study how the app works and figure out how you can make a trend work for you. And, you know, I was like, no one friggin' if TikTok, no one told David Bowie to do that shit. I mean, granted, TikTok wasn't a thing and neither were mobile phones, but not the point. They had a team to do that for them. Like, Mm -hmm. I think. I think musicians, unless they love doing it, and of course, if this is something that you're passionate about and you love, go ahead, go do it. But for me personally, I just wish that I could just focus on what I love doing and that's performing, writing, recording and releasing, Um, you know, and occasionally posting a thing to be like, hi guys, how you doing? Nice to see you. Here's my thing. Goodbye. Like I don't want to like make up transitions or like the the trends. I don't don't really want to do it. Like it's just I don't enjoy it. I find it really irritating and I find it myself not for anyone else because there's people who are great at it but me myself I cringe at myself when I do these things which is why I don't do them very much well and and again like you you've developed a skill and you're really good at it as someone who has seen you perform live multiple times you have a phenomenal voice you have fantastic stage presence like you're an excellent musician so why not just be allowed to be that the thing that you're good at and and even from business sense if someone is really strong in one area, why not capitalize on that? Why not emphasize their strengths and hide, for lack of a better term, their weaknesses, right? I f- it feels like a lot of companies are trying to – and maybe because the, the, the model they built is so unsustainable that they're trying to lower their own costs by heaping those costs back on the artist. Like figure out a way to get yourself over and then we'll come in to profit off of what you've done organically. Absolutely. That's absolutely it, what it is. At, at, at a certain point, do you start to wonder what the point of a label is? Honestly, like when I was younger, my biggest dream was to be signed to Interscope, um, mm. you know, closely followed by Roadrunner. That's who I wanted to be signed by, you know, because not because it's like, oh, I'd be signed to a ma- major label, but just because touring costs and recording costs are so expensive. Um, right. You know, I I could not afford to do that. I just can't. If I was offered to do a tour tomorrow – as much as I'd love to do it, there's no way I could do it. Um, there's just not. I wouldn't be able to go unless, you know, I started to go fund me or did a Patreon or, you know, asked a bank to loan me money. Um, right. So in that respect, having a label is wonderful. But all the extra stuff that goes with it, like you, you know, back in the 80s, they gave you a really big advance. You know, you had to pay that money back, obviously, and it was skewed. But the artist made money. It made sense. Now I feel like um, you see some of these really big artists who get picked up. They've done all the groundwork. 
they've done everything that the label's done for them and then the label comes in at the last minute it's like cool thanks we're gonna take your money now and you're like what hang on a minute it's that's like I I just don't see how this is a sustainable model like how can artists truly be great artists if they're constantly broke constantly struggling and then when they first start to see some reward for their success someone comes in and takes half their money like that's not really how it should be Uh, you know spotify what uh what does what is the art it's like 0.0005 cents or something per stream like i have a song that has 336,000 streams on spotify do you think i see i think i've probably earned three dollars from that wow like if well, that yeah well famously uh who, who was it peter uh peter frampton showed a residual check that he got for um i love your way which is you know it, it was a huge song it's yeah. a, it a massive song and it was like yeah it was like less than a dollar or something like that um doyle from the misfits and his own band has posted similar sort of residual checks it, it's 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 insane and it's not just for music too because um you know we call it an mg minimum guarantee but in film indie indie filmmakers used to be able to do the same thing they would they would um attach an artist uh you know an actor usually and they would pre-sell uh foreign and and um distribution rights and that was oftentimes used as part of the budget for the film itself you could it could easily equate to a third of your budget. And if you were smart and you could go to an incentive state that have like, you know, a 30% rebate and you sold 30% of the, the distribution rights, especially foreign in advance, then you, your film was two thirds of the way financed just, just based on those two things. And then finding a third for your film was more manageable. Whereas nowadays you, you very rarely can pre-sell and if you do sign uh, with a distribution um, production company, you know again you'll get you'll get MGs like twenty grand, not not even remotely enough to pay back your investors, and and then you just gotta hope for the best. And I wonder if the answer is uh, uh, as much as we've complained about technology, maybe the answer is technology, where where in the creation process becomes cheaper and faster. And and maybe there will be platforms that can open up that you're not so buried in in millions of songs that you could build an audience organically and, and maybe just stay independent. I mean, maybe not you specifically, but artists in general. I I just think there needs to be something that changes changes because at least from um I know I know from a film, but from a music standpoint, it's almost feels like society doesn't count our art as being worth money. So they want to use it everywhere. They want to reference it. They want to put it in films. They want to play it on the radio. They want to be able to listen to it for free. You know, they want to be, they want all of this access. But then when it comes to the artist being fairly compensated, it's like, oh, well, it's just music or it's just a film. Why should we pay for that? It's like, okay, well, remove it from your life and, you know, don't listen to it then. Because if you don't pay the people who are creating it so they can, you know, have a, not even like, and I'm not talking about like cocaine hookers in a mansion in the Hollywood Hills. I'm just talking about a basic living. Um, No cocaine, just the hookers in the house in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. But I'm just talking about a basic standard of living. Like if you don't provide that for the people who are creating, then they won't have the energy to create anymore. 
Um, yeah. I, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually do have a, a very demanding full-time job. Um, I have since the pandemic and it just, I finish at the end of that day and I don't feel like doing anything. Like I don't feel like playing the guitar. I don't feel like, because my, all of my energy has been spent in this corporate environment, just like draining. Um, mm-hmm. but it's necessary because I don't make enough money to support myself off my art. So it's kind of, are we going to see a whole generation of artists who are just kind of burnt out or are we going to see a change so we can actually have people making money off their, their art again? And I, I know you can play in cover bands. I know that you can do a lot of different stuff, but again, that's a lot of hustle and a lot of work. And that's a different kind of thing to what some other people are doing. Like an original artist who's not a session person, who's trying to make money off the art that they create specifically. Uh, you know, the romantic in me hopes that, and, and and maybe we see a little bit of it with uh, Gen Z, which is, I, I can see social media potentially becoming a thing that's like a blip in time. And it's it doesn't, I mean, I don't think it's going to go away entirely, but I do think that I could see it being de-emphasized over time. Um, you know, the, the rise of social media really pops off around 2009 with Facebook, because even though there was MySpace and Friendster and LiveJournal and things that those sort of the proto social media websites and apps, um, it's really Facebook that that starts the sort of the, this sort of era. But Facebook, within a couple of years of its existence, two three years of its existence, was already seen as the old person's app, and people migrated over to Instagram and to Twitter. Instagram and Twitter for a lot of young people are now the old people apps and they've migrated over to TikTok. I I wonder at a certain point, if you, I mean, you, I just can't imagine there's only so many ways that you can reinvent this wheel. If people just start to move away from that. And um, if there aren't opportunities for people to miss an older way of absorbing um, art and, 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 and you know, just in the same way that that vinyl has had a revolution, uh, and and sort of become, I think in most instances, the outside of like a Spotify or Apple Music, the preferred way of supporting an artist is buying their vinyl versus a CD or a cassette tape. I, I I would hope and and um, I really I really really hope that it, be, it comes to this that people will eventually cycle out of this era of instant gratification and they'll revert back even if it's you know relatively smaller subjects of society will revert back to sort of really appreciating artistry and um and craft and we'll start supporting those again in a more meaningful manner and i think it's gonna again i think it's gonna be sort of a a collaboration between the technology to create art becoming cheaper and more self-sustainable and an audience that's willing to really support artists in a way that our current generation, uh, millennials through older Gen Zs aren't doing right now uh, and, and haven't been for some time. Oh yeah. I, I do think that there is going to be a shift. I mean, I know in LA it's still, very, very much a thing, but being in Sweden and also being here in Australia, unless you are like a content creator or trying to be a social influencer or are one, a lot of people I know don't really do a whole lot of social media, um, in, at least in the circles that I'm in, unless it is to sell something that I'm, unless it is like part of their business model. Um, mm-hmm. 
I see a lot of people moving away from doing that personal vlog, um, vlog, blog, online thing. I'm, I, I know that I have for one and it's, I kind of like that. I, I miss the, um, like MySpace was great. I loved MySpace, but yeah. I, I do miss the mystery that used to be, that used to surround people. I miss mm. the way that you used to be able to meet someone and know them, but you only knew a small part of their life, um, whether it was from being at school with them or being at work with them. And you didn't know about the rest. You know, you, you would be like, I wonder what this person likes. Like you'd try and buy them a gift. You'd be like, damn, I have no idea. They said that they liked this during this conversation. Then you just have to sit there and kind of be inventive with it where it's now it's like, oh, do they have this? I'm just going to go on their Instagram and, oh, okay, well, I can see that they like Marvel films and anime and TikTok. So let's, you know what I mean? It's, I miss that kind of mystery of getting to know someone, which, you know, now, now you go out, you can Google anyone and just be like, oh, I wonder what this person's like. Like kind of removes the fun, right? It does. It does. And it, and it speaks to a larger issue, I think, that's going on in our society right now. Um, we went out to lunch the other day and we were contemplating buying a dream catcher. And um, we looked at the price and it was I don't know, 60 bucks or something like that. And I remember thinking, I remember talking with Jess about it and saying like, well, you know, she was like, it's a little too pricey to buy. And I was saying to her, and I think this is it really sort of dawned on me in this moment that we have gotten so accustomed to things being so cheap that we're addicted to consuming them. Not that we actually really want them. We just, it's, it's like, it's like when you used to go to a, 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 an outlet store or a store that where everything's on sale and you're like, well, I, I can't afford not to buy this because it's so cheap, right? I think what has happened is that we we have too much, too much everything, and we've gotten so addicted to having it so immediate that we've we have lost that sense of of mystery. You know, I remember when I'm growing up, one of our friends in our group, Bobby, we met because he happened to have he was a Misfits fan, and he happened to have an armband with the Crimson Ghost on it, and we just saw him in the mall, and because. We grew up in a town where it was pretty small and there wasn't a lot of people who liked punk rock, much less horror punk, to see someone who had similar interest in us and recognize that through the, what they're wearing, it emboldened us to, to say hello and form a friendship, right? Nowadays, um, the opposite has occurred where the ability to find people who have like interest to you is so much easier than ever before because like to your point, you can go on their socials, you can Google them and you can find out, you know everything about them, what their dietary restrictions are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we're, we're less compelled to engage than ever before. Um, speaking of Twitter, famously, just recently, there was this big discourse about whether or not it's ableist to make chili for your neighbor. Um, and what it highlighted to me is that people are so deathly afraid of anything that inconveniences them or makes them feel uncomfortable that they have to villainize that Wait, in order ableist? to just – What's ableist about making chili for your neighbor? A goddamn nothing. But there are weirdos online who will make arguments like, oh, you don't know what they're, you don't know. For example, I'm vegan, right? And if some if a neighbor made chili for me, they wouldn't know that. And so they would potentially be giving me something with meat. And I might have to have that uncomfortable conversation where I say, thank you for the gesture, but no, thank you. And I don't eat this or, you know, but there is, but even in that you know, somewhat awkward interaction, 
good can come of it, right? Like, you know, you could say, oh, you know, I don't eat meat. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's great to get to know you. Um, our other neighbor does eat meat. It might be worth giving it to them. And, you know, maybe we could treat you to vegan, you know, whatever. You find a way to sort of work through it, right? Uh, are these the same people that say that being ve- a vegan and white is racist? Yeah, usually. Okay. Yeah, just checking. Yeah. And almost always <laughs> in these instances, these are folks that are, are – um, the people who might tend to find – who are the loudest about these kinds of things aren't the people who are affected by them. Yeah. Like it got exposed that the person who was throwing the big conniption is like a landlord. Right. So like uh, who, who, who in an older post talked about um, tenants moving in and suddenly suggesting to them that, that this person is pan in hopes that perhaps they're uh poly and she could score with her tenants. Like this is the, this, this is a person who's now thinks it's, it's bad to, make a, a a meal for a brand new neighbor and introduce yourself. So oh they're all hypocrites. God. They're all, they're all full of shit, but, yeah. it, but it drives home the point that we're, I think it really stems from is that people are so morbidly afraid of things that make them uncomfortable. So we, we can find out facts about people easier than ever, but it doesn't go anywhere beyond that. Like we're, we're less, we have less connection than ever. Yeah. We have less, and and the connections that we do have have less depth than ever before. And for me, and this sort of goes back to what I was talking about with the with the um the dream catcher, what's really what's really been driven into my brain is that we just don't need as much as we think we do. Like we don't need three thousand friends online. You probably need like a handful of pals, you know, three or four good friends who you can hang out with whom you can share with, whom you can laugh, cry, love, et cetera. And you'll be perfectly like uh, sustained with that. But we've, I, I see people all the time, you know, panicking about how many people are following them and not just people who are doing it because they're unfortunate. Like we've talked about the industry sort of demands that, but like just average blokes that just want to consume people. In the same way that they consume every other like factory made trinket in their closet that they never use or wear. And we as a society, I think, have to get beyond this like obsession with com- with consuming everything so immediate so that we can actually savor what we are consuming when we make an, a conscientious choice to engage or buy or or whatever with something that actually means something to us. Oh, absolutely. I am. Um... I would highly recommend living out of suitcase for two years. Um, that really shows you what you do and do not need. Not necessarily like it's it's nice to have it's nice to have some extras, but yeah, there's when it comes down to it, you can usually fit the things that you need in a suitcase. Because you've been living sort of out of a suitcase and and you you have been traveling all around the world, does that and and as you noted earlier, you have a day job as as many people have to have these days how does that affect your creative process? Like, are you able, I mean, I, I don't know all the software or what's the latest software for music, but is it still something that you, do you have like your own little traveling sort of demo uh, maker or, or do you, do you wait and sort of try to find a time where you can commit all your energy to being creative rather than sort of doing it um, as inspiration strikes? 
Um, so I do have demo, like a, I do have a Scarlet and I do have monitors. And when I was in the one place, I had a little setup, um, but I'm not the world's greatest engineer. So I find that more interferes with my creative process than anything mm. because I'm sitting there like, why the fuck doesn't this work? Why does this sound like this? I actually don't enjoy doing that myself. So I will, I, I have my guitar with me and I usually use the note, uh, the voice recorder on my iPhone to get down mm-hmm. a few things. Um, in Sweden, I do have someone that I work with um, and I either go in after I finish work or I might um, set aside some time on the weekends. I prefer to have time where it's like, okay, during this period, I, this is going to be my goal. And then we go in for like five or six hours and then the song gets written, the demo gets recorded, it's ready to go, lyrics get written, you sit on it and then you come back. I've always been someone that I'll have bits here and there, but I'm better when it's like, okay, on these days I'm going to be in the studio, this is what I'm going to create, and I'm able to sit down and get all of that done. Um, It's not really – I find all of the travelling and, like, the no constant address thing, I find that to be quite – kind of difficult to become inspired with because it's, you know, you're never in, you're not never in a state of permanence and you're mm-hmm. always in someone else's space. I am someone who, when I'm creating or when I'm rehearsing, I don't like other people to be around. I feel very mm-hmm. self-conscious because when you're rehearsing, you're not giving, you're not doing what you would do on stage. You're making all the mistakes. You're hitting wrong notes. You're singing out of tune sometimes because you're like, oh, that's a bit higher than I thought it was, um, you know, and it's just not a, you know, you're getting yourself prepared for when you will be good. So, you know, I find in the last two years it has been more difficult for me to create outside of the studio Whereas before, you know, I would play at night, I'd hang out with my dog, I'd play guitar, I'd be up to like 3 a.m. writing songs probably that never went anywhere. But it was still, you know, moving my hands, getting it done. Whereas now it's um, it's not so much because, again, you're sharing space with people. If you're staying at someone's house, you don't really want to be, you know, playing the guitar when they're working or like 3 a.m. in the morning. They're probably not going to be stoked with you, you know. Yeah, I can understand that. I, I'm very similar in that manner. When I'm working, when I'm traveling, it's very hard. I mean, people who listen to this podcast know like I oftentimes drop off when I just get too bogged down. It, it is, it, it's kind of hard. Like getting into a creative place does take some, some, at least for me, and sounds like to you as well, like a little bit of, of personal space, um, a little bit of solitude and quietness, just so I can hear my own thoughts above the rest of the noise and put myself in a place where I actually feel like creating something. You know, I've been sitting on a blog for weeks now. And I'm trying to debate w- what direction I want to take it in. And um, it's been pretty challenging to find that that quiet time to sit down and commit to whatever I'm going to create when there's just a lot of distractions around you. So yeah. it makes sense that you'd, in a perfect world, like you might have some bits in your mind, but having dedicated time to sit down and and to work on music um, in an environment that you can sort of capture it as it's being created and you're not just in a random hotel or on someone's couch or what have you, it would make sense that it would be a far more um, inviting environment for you to tap into that creative part of yourself. Oh, absolutely. It's having personal space or even just a space that's yours is um... – is is a lot it's a lot easier to get things done for sure now and i kind of probably already know the answer to this do, 
you usually write either with a co-writer or on your own, right? You don't do like the sort of the band jam session kind of writing. No, I mean, I have done band jam session kind of writing before. Um, and it's, it is really fun, but I do feel like sometimes there's a bit of a case of too many cooks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I do have my strengths, which are top lining and lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to like ballads and acoustic stuff, I, you know, I can do that as well. But when I'm writing some of the more riff-based stuff, I do like to have a co-writer who is, you know, purely there for just amazing guitar work mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because, again, I'm not a lead guitar player. Uh, I'm not right. someone who's ever been strong with, like, riffing and things like that. So it's really cool to find where to fill the gaps where my weaknesses are. Um, again, like, I play to my strengths and I like to bring in someone who can enhance those and even be – I love having someone who's also good with top lining lyrics because sometimes you're like, damn it, I'm stuck – or you think you have a great thing, they'll be like, what about this? You're like, damn it, that was good. So it's <laughs> I really I really do enjoy that collaboration process. Um I have done I have done writing sessions where it's been two top liners and then a producer, and that was too much because it's it's like, okay, I've already kind of got this. Like, is there anything else? Like I just feel right. like two people arguing over lyrics isn't really helping. Like I what? feel like yeah, and I would imagine because your your lyrical content is so personal, and is um, or at least it feels personal, and it feels almost ripped from your diary. In, in some in some instances, I would I would imagine that when because you're the one who has to sing it, you're the one who has to perform it, and you're the one who has to put the emotion behind it. That having just a, a, another body there to say, oh, well, what about this turn of a phrase would be would be make it really difficult to to make it to have ownership of the the art that you're creating i think it definitely depends what the song is being used for um if it's a song that's going to be me uh for evil walks for example i do prefer for it to be um you know me and then it's like i'm having trouble with this line like what do you think of this like i you know obviously that but if it's um you know if it's a song that we're writing for someone else's project or something then Mm -hmm. yep have at it but i i definitely the lyrics in particular are very important to me and there's something that I really do like to take full ownership of wherever possible. Um, just because, again, I'm the one that's singing them. I'm the one that has to put it out there. And and you are right. Like all of my songs are very personal. Like I can tell you exactly who they're about or what they're about or where they come from. Um, you know, mo- like none of the songs that I have released um, are just like, oh, I just thought it would be fun to write a song about this. Like, no, they're all very personal experiences that have all happened to me. Um, you know, I can describe all of it. And, you know, if, I think if you know me and I kind of sit down, you're like, oh, yeah, I see that. I, I hear where that one's coming. Right. It, it, so I obviously on a much smaller local scale. Um, it's quite the opposite for me. Whereas when I used to play in bands, I would almost entirely write all the lyrics for uh, various singers. Um, towards the end there, the the singer started contributing himself and, and – um, Christopher, whom you've not met, but you've met Jason, his brother. Uh, Christopher would also write a lot of lyrics towards the second half of our second band. But um, oftentimes for me, I would I would be writing the lyrics for the singer. So they were personal for, for me, but someone else is singing that, right? Someone else is trying to put emotion behind that. Do you, have you ever been called to do that where you're, where you're asking – you're being asked to write music for someone else um, and specifically lyrics and – and you 
how much of yourself can you put into that knowing that you're going to kind of hand it off to someone else and it's going to be their song? Yeah. I mean, I actually did a session with someone like two weeks ago where we did that. And um, in that case, it was just kind of like, okay, what suits the song? This is the vibe. What about this? What about this? Like we had a title that we kind of worked off and then we kind of just went from there. Um, I don't really inject too much of my own personal experience into things that I'm giving to other people. Obviously there might be hints of it or there might be like inspiration drawn from, but it's not in the same way because again, it can't, I think it's every. I think it should be personal. I think it should have emotion behind it, but I don't think it should be to the point that it's so personal that the person that you're giving it to is going to be like, "I can't relate to this." Like, how am I going to do this when I don't have that experience? Yeah. No. I, listen, I've been I've been on the receiving end of getting that note. Uh, one of my one of the singers of the band I was in got really mad at me once because I I turned in lyrics and he was like, "I have to breathe." Yeah. I'm like, okay, "Figure it out." Uh, these are my words. Uh, um, cause I'm paying bass. So I don't care. I don't have to, I don't have to like take breath with any, I'm right. This is art. Read it. Just scream it out loud. Uh, um, uh, so that's probably why I'm not in bands anymore. Um, uh, <laughs> so where do you see, I, I mean, you, you've been doing evil walks for a long time now. You, you've, you've written some fantastic songs. You've got good music videos out there. What, what do you like, if you could look in your crystal ball and sort of, see where you'd like to go in the next five years is there a direction that you're hoping the band travels in either either sonically or just in its presentation and like how you perform and where you're performing um i want to continue uh down the heavier route that the last few singles have been on um the one that we released on friday sleeping with a ghost that's kind of where i want to be sitting um i look honestly i would just really love to be able to get a new album out there and do a tour that's I would love to do that and again I mentioned before like financially at the moment that's just not going to happen the rising cost of traveling um even just as a solo traveler is astronomical so I can't even imagine what touring with five people would do but you know I hope that we attract the right attention that maybe I wouldn't have to be the one paying for it (laughs) but we'll we'll see just write good music get it out there and play when I can that's awesome. And do you, I know you're currently in Australia. Um, do you have any uh, concerts coming up or, or, you know, again, because you've sort of been bouncing all over the place, part, probably part of your brand is in Los Angeles and what have you, but do you, will you be performing sometime soon? Yeah, I will actually. I'm performing in like two weeks, I think. I, uh, I do play the guitar, which most people who know me know that, but I guess when if you've just listened to the band, you wouldn't know. But yeah, so I'm going to be doing a solo acoustic show uh, here on the Gold Coast at a place called Vinny's Dive Bar. And it's going to be fun. Like I haven't played, I, I haven't really played on the Gold Coast since I was like 19 or 20. And I did all the clubs and all the bars and I toured Australia. Um, but I haven't been here for so long. So I've kind of really lost that, um, lost that, like knowing who people are. So it's going to be fun. It's on a Saturday afternoon and it's completely free. And I'm playing with a, a guy called Ollie Twohill, who's an up and coming local artist and another guy, Dan Stone. I think he goes as simply acoustic. Um, so I think it's going to just be a really fun afternoon and it's a way for me to kind of get back into the local industry a little bit. And um, hopefully from that, I can, you know, get some more gigs. Um, but I haven't put too much too much into finding them because I'm, I think I'm only here until January and then I'm on the road again. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to put in so much effort when you know you're going to be leaving for an undisclosed period of time. 
Yeah. Once again, that, that nomadic life that you're living right now, do you, do you notice big differences between the scenes in say the States and in um, Australia, but like specifically the gold coast in Los Angeles? I mean, I can only speak on it when I was younger. I don't think I would know enough about it now to make that comment, but, and this is just, again, from what I noticed previously, I I can't say it now. Um, I find that the, the LA music scene, everybody knows each other. Like literally everybody knows each other. And if you don't know someone, you probably know five other people that do. Um, And everyone's very welcoming and everyone plays in each other's bands and, you know, everyone's collaborating, but that's because nobody really, you know, everyone does music full time. And if they don't do it full time, they do have a job that allows them to appear as if they do music full time, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, I think here music is not as respected in Australia, I think, Mm -hmm. as we would like it to be. Um, America seems to place a lot more importance on the arts than Australia does. Australia's like, well, the sports. Um, Mm yeah it's it's a constant frustration so i think the the scene here does exist um but it definitely doesn't have the diversity of content not content but genre you know um it has there are artists doing all different things here but as far as gigs in my experience are it's like either like deathcore or like acoustic or maybe a little bit of rap um Hmm. there's not that like whereas in la it's literally every genre you've got jazz fusion you've got hip-hop you've got rock you've got acoustic you've got acid whatever like it's it's just everything but again you're talking about a city that has close to the population of like I think the state of California has more people than my entire country so you have to kind of put that into perspective I think I don't think it's for lack of wanting I just think it's lack of bodies and lack of funding Right. It's a, it's a double-edged sword I, I've found. I mean, obviously not with Australia, but like being from a smaller city in, in South Texas, in that sometimes those smaller regions can produce some really great work because there's just nothing else to do. There's nothing else going on. And sometimes when you have bigger cities and there's just so many things going on, it's, you know, how many people are going to form bands um, because they just love the music or they have a unique sound when there's just so many other things that you could be spending your time doing and, and entertaining yourself versus where I grew up, uh, there was the beach and there was uh, meth and there was starting music. So that was, those were our three options. That's right? a tough and choice. So They're tough. It was a tough choice. Um, no, no, no hookers or uh, uh, Coke or Hollywood Hills and, in South Texas. <laughs> but the flip side though, to your point, like, you know, you want to be at a place where the music's respected, where people are genuinely there to watch people perform and to, and to listen to their music. And I've been to, like I said, several of your shows and some of the open mic nights and things of that nature. And it's it's for being a big city like it is, it always seems to generate a very good turnout. Oh, yeah, it's it's definitely it's always busy. That's something I loved. Uh, I love about L.A., It doesn't matter what night of the week it is. It could be a Monday. It could be a Wednesday. It could be a Saturday. You could have a packed house. Um, And it's, and again, I think it just comes down to the lifestyle of the people that live in those cities because it is an entertainment city versus somewhere like the city I'm from, which is not an entertainment city. I mean, it's a, it's a tourist city sort of, uh, because we're right Mm -hmm. on the beach. People sometimes call it the Vegas of Australia, which, you know, Vegas Mm. doesn't have a, it doesn't have a beach, but that's fine. Um, Everybody more Florida, but okay, we go to Vegas. 
Yeah, Miami, Florida, I guess. Um, I, I wouldn't say that too loudly, though, because some people might be upset over here to be called, likened to Florida. Um, oh, they'll get over it. Yeah, listen, mate. Listen, politics aside, Florida is a beautiful place. It is. Actually, I think our sister city is Miami. There you go. So there you go. Um, yeah, I think that the pe- like I d- the shows that I have been to here recently, and again, when I spoke before, I was talking about like 2011, 2012. It's been 13. It's been that long. Um, you know, when I have gone to shows on weekends and stuff, there's been a decent crowd and people have like really enjoyed it. I think bet- uh, among the musicians in the community, there's that desire there. It's just that it doesn't get the recognition it deserves and like, at like a higher level that would, you know, approves the funding approves the sound licensing and the liquor licensing i think it it comes from above and also people here do have day jobs they can't go out till one o'clock on a monday morning partying and listen to music because they have to be up for work at five thirty. you know right right well i i think that you will i, I believe because I, I just truly believe this about strong artists like you that that break is coming and whatever it is that you want your music to be and how you want it, it to be presented is is on the on just on the verge of happening for you. Um, and, and I would I would love to see that occur for you because I think you've definitely paid your dues and your music is excellent. And I think most people would really be into it. So for anyone who is interested, who maybe didn't hear the last time you were on the episode and wants to follow your band and you and all of your adventures, like where can they find you? What's new? You just had a song come out. Like, what can people expect from Evil Walks? So we had just had the new song come out on Friday. So we'll be pushing that one for a bit. Um, and what I was that called again? Sleeping with a Ghost. Um, Sleeping with a Ghost. And that one was co-written with Brian Howes, who's an amazing Canadian producer and songwriter. And then Jason Vern Puderine. I don't know if I um, pronounced his last name right. He also engineered and played bass on the track. Um, nice. I think there'll be a bit of a break for Christmas, hanging out in Australia, enjoying the sun. It's my first Christmas back in two years. So that's going to be lovely. And then I've got two more songs that are almost kind of ready that I've been working on with um, Chris Wetterström in Sweden. Uh, one of them is co-written. Um, it was co-written quite a while ago with uh, an old band member of mine who's also a good friend, Dre Demura. Um, I think that one's going to be included in the next round. Um and then I'm also working on a secret project that will hopefully be able to not be so secret soon. Very cool. Very cool. Now for people who want to support you, want to support you beyond like Spotify, um, is there, do you have, does, does Evil Walk have its own website? Is there a way that they can actually spend real money to like buy stuff from you and, and support your, your artistry? We do have a band camp. So you can find us on, I should actually put the new songs on Bandcamp. You've just reminded me. Uh, yeah, so Bandcamp go. is uh, where you can definitely support us and spend real money, and that goes directly into the band's PayPal. Um, streaming us on YouTube is always a big help because YouTube actually pays the artists kind of properly. Um, and then just, like, you know, giving us a follow on Instagram, interacting with our content, sharing our stuff. Um, sharing goes a long way if you don't have the money or the, you know, the resources right now, cause I know everyone's a bit tight. Um, even just sharing our stuff and interacting with us is a really big help. Well, I, I would urge everyone to support you because like I said, um, uh, I think that your music is fantastic and I'll play a clip of sleeping with the ghosts, uh, at the end of this podcast so that people can hear a little bit of it and, and hopefully we'll have you on again soon and hopefully just see you again soon while you're traveling. Uh, it's, 
ships in the night and what have you, but uh, you're a lovely person and you're a wonderful artist and evil walks is a fantastic band. So if you haven't listened to evil walks yet, please go do it now. Um, support the band, support Leah and Leah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so glad that we made this happen. Yes. Until the next time. Until the next time. I want to thank Leah Martin Brown one more time for coming on the podcast and sharing her perspective as an artist, as a musician, working through and developing art in an ever-changing landscape. As I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, for those people out there who are bold enough to develop a craft and artisanship, who are seeking to create uh, works of, of entertainment in music or in movies or any medium, really, with the, with the increasing reliance on social media and streaming services and the internet in general, it has really changed not only the way artists create art, but I think that it's also changed the way that we as appreciators of said art have changed the way it's changed the way we've consumed it. It, it. The fact that we have gone from appreciating the arts to consuming the arts just in the verbiage that I'm using there kind of illustrates the change that's occurred. And as I said, again, once again, at the top of the podcast, if you are an appreciator, if you'd love music, if you'd love the craftsmanship that goes into creating an album, if you love those old classics and the way they made you feel and the way they made you think and, and the change in emotional, vibrational energy that you feel when you're like you're captured by an artist's work. And if you find that that's going away, if you find yourself less falling in love with a piece of art, be it music or or a different genre, then I think it's important to hear what Leah has to say. And I think it's important to look at our own small behavior is to see how we can to the best of our ability support these artists because the industry is not the industry is not supporting artists as more and more companies get uh, gobbled up by one another the more monopolization becomes not only the the modus operandi of businesses but also gets cheered on by a certain subsection a toxic subsection in my opinion of fandom it's incumbent upon us if we do love these these artists and we do want them to continue to thrive that we find our own ways to support them to amplify their voices to share full albums to to listen to full albums to really listen to the music as it was intended to be enjoyed because i think we do ourselves a disservice when we take everything in short uh, effortless bites there is value in listening to an album front to back and going on a journey yes it may take an hour of your time but the experience that one gathers from going through that rather than just being a single on a playlist, which is not, which again can be fine in and of itself. There's a, there's an art to creating the perfect mixtape, but as a whole, I think that we're losing something every year with every passing moment. And before it goes away and com completely before there were two or three generations in who don't even understand what it felt like to listen to music, uh, to go buy something, to own it, to physically hold it in one hand, put it on the record player or put it in your CD player or cassette tape player and to hear it from beginning to end to determine for yourself, which is the popular song, what song, you know, resonates with you and what doesn't. If, if we not, if we're not careful before we know it, no one will remember what that was like, and it may be lost to the annuals of time, as many things have in the past. And so um, let this be hopefully a wake-up call. As you hear Leah's story, you hear an artist who's working her ass off 
to to bring her talent to entertain us. Let that be a wake up call that perhaps we can be doing more to support these artists, to appreciate their work and to demand that we don't commodify everything into single serving fast food bites. I want to thank you all again, again for listening to this podcast. Uh, I, I, you know, again, the, there's lots of options out there and you've chosen this one. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I wish you all a wonderful week. And until next time, gold rings on you all. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I want to remind everyone to stick around for the outro song. I'm going to be playing a snippet of Evil Rock's new single, Sleeping With The Ghost. It's a jam. I think you guys are really enjoy it. Put it in your car. Like it on Spotify. Like it on YouTube. Follow their socials. Support local artists. And so without further ado, Evil Rock's new single, Sleeping With The Ghost. <laughs>